This is Near Death, where we shine a light on some of the darkest stories from the military world. To be honest, it's not for everyone. You'll hear about some pretty traumatic events, and this episode includes some graphic descriptions of serious injuries from the outset. If you're okay to keep listening, here's Kirk's story. Um, uh, and Gary said to me, hey Kirk, I've got your arm here, what do you want me to do with it? I said, what do you mean? You've got my arm? He said, yeah, I've got it here. It's in the tub. <laughs> this was two days after the mission and it was my arm. And, and I said, well, I've got use for it. We do so m- much to try and prevent something going wrong. But when you're dealing with big armour and planes and helicopters and machine guns and bombs, there's a danger, there's a risk, and these things happen. So it's it's, it's understanding that. Uh, I, but the burials were, were you know, we, 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 had, we had a series of funerals and it was almost like, I was almost autopilot. You know, you do the military drill and you you hold the coffins and you're lowering your friends down into, into the, the grave. Uh, <laughs> And there's dark humour. There's real dark humour. Uh, so we'd started doing the perils and um, we had a, a coffin and it was empty. Uh, and it's really lightweight. And it's like, well, this isn't a human. You know, we need to practice with the, you know, and it's really, with military drill, it's lower, raise, lower. And we had a young soldier that had joined us, young Sefton. And um, the, the sergeant major, uh, Andy, said, Sefton, get in the coffin. <laughs> So, okay, we left the lid off. Don't get me wrong, left the lid off. Uh, and um, we, we rehearsed the whole, a whole funeral with the burial. He's in the, he's in the hearse. We pulled him out of the hearse. He's up on the shoulder. We're in. The, the sermon's being read and you're stood on the trestle. But as, as soldiers, we can't look down at the coffin. It's all feely-feely because you've got to be looking up. <laughs> Lower the coffin into the grave and throw the throw the straps to one side and you know the 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 the, 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 the salute happens uh, uh and uh we we have a debrief you know this is the rehearsal and uh we go oh guys you know a bit slow there you know we lost a step here. remember that step you know lift up a bit because we tripped a bit and i remember looking down into the grave and young sefton's there in this grave white as a sheet and uh it, it, it goes and i go oh sefton come on get guys oh please don't don't make me do that again don't make me do that again <laughs> So we did it. We put sandbags in for the next ones, but it, it, it what it taught me was the um, the dark humour of death. And uh, I've got friends in the emergency services, and the way to get through it and understand our mortality is that is that dark humour. And as veterans, we 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 always revert back to that because it's it's humanity. You've got to um, you've got to understand the f- the, f- the finite our finite existence because you've got that split second. And that split second is between you being alive or seriously injured or dead. And it became, it, be, it becomes addictive in a way. And, and I speak to a lot of my veteran friends, it becomes a little bit addictive. And weirdly, as my career went on, it became a norm. Being in this danger became normal. You know, being in these patrol bases with the, the threat of a mortar landing on you every day just became a normal daily thing. So I, I left the army uh, and I returned to the Middle East as a, as a bodyguard. I, I retrained as in close protection. We'd already done some close protection work up in up in Kabul uh, with with our with our own uh, diplomats. And I went back out looking after the to Iraq 
to look after the Foreign Office and State Department. Uh, and it was a really interesting mission. Um, the, the, the kinetic operations had finished. The US troops were winding down in 2012. Uh, and we were preparing for their withdrawal. And as, as private contractors, we were very good at plugging gaps, very dynamic, you know, with highly trained guys and girls. We'd go in there. We, we were ex-military. We could go in. But we had the, the knowledge and diplomacy and maturity to, to go in peacefully and measure it and also that i'd gained a bit of experience in iraq my, my my arabic was was getting okay i could understand and understand the politics out there and i was hoping for you know a five ten year career and it would only get more peaceful and you know that we would have uh, a democracy in the country but once the american troops had withdrawn uh by december barack obama wanted the troops out by the december um in into 2013 things started to unravel This um, force started to arrive, this, this, this black badness started to arrive that my local nationals called Daesh, never heard of the word before. Uh, and um, I, I thought nothing of it. My, my, our intelligence briefings coming in from, from the headquarters were, you know, your, your AO is great. You know, don't, and we were a little bit caught off, caught off guard. Um, we were carrying on helping to rebuild and reconstruct and train. We were down to Umkazar in the Arabian Gulf. Really dynamic stuff on helicopters out to the oil platforms and road moves up to Baghdad, right across the country, really stretched out operations. Uh, but I found the more and more stretched we got, the more and more distant we were from our safety, the more distant we were from our base, the more stretched our medical uh, support became. And the question started to rear the head, you know, we were carrying on with our missions and it's, it's, it's big boys rules, you know, you're working out in these environments and as a, as, a, as, as a commander of a team, it was my decision whether to, are we going to do the mission, is it safe enough? And you're constantly pushed to just get it done, get the job done, get the job done. It was, it was about, we got to sort of just, just, just around Ramadan 2013, peak of summer, sort of June 2013, 40 degree heat. And we'd started to do these long missions to, to, to get people out of the country. Uh, you know, people um, were, were being ordered to, to, to leave. ISIS had got to Abu Ghraib, which is about 30 miles from Baghdad. You know, they got really close. And other security companies were, were, were beginning to wrap up at certain parts. We'd heard of incidents that out, out towards the east. Uh, and on the day of my of the incident, um, we'd actually we'd actually got the clients to the airport. We, you know, it was a long old day. We'd started about five in the morning, um, four armoured vehicles, so a, 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 we call it a heavy call sign, uh, B6 Land Cruisers with, we've got weapon systems and armour and radios and in there, the clients in the back. And we'd managed to get them to the airport to get them out. and. I was, I was due on leave three days later. I was thinking, you know, I'm on leave three days later. Just three more days. I've got a few more smaller missions to do into at the town called Alcott to, to do a bit of a negotiation with the client. And then I'm out myself. I'm on that Freedom Bird home and I can have a bit of a rest and then sort of recuperate and sort of see where I go from there. And um, we, we'd been on the go from about five in the morning and they've got checkpoints on that were heavily manned by Iraqi police and they would search just to prevent IEDs moving, just to prevent devices moving around because there's a lot of suicide bombing, bombings happening. There's, there's, the Shia and the Sunni communities were attacking one another. Uh, so it's quite volatile. We'd got to a remote part of the, 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 the route, big long desert road, and there were a number of checkpoints along the desert road. 
that used to be manned for the last couple of months, the police weren't putting people on there. They were too remote. Um, what was happening, ISIS were coming in and they were assassinating the police. They'd come in with pistols, silencers on, and a couple of, you know, a couple of the bases did, did, did sneak up and, and assassinate the police. So the police were dubious to man these checkpoints. Uh, I, I'm leading the convoy and I'm, I'm in the front vehicle um, and uh, we're going about 40, 50 miles an hour and I can see the checkpoint chicane ahead of me. Uh, and it's manned. And as we're approaching, in, in the sort of the, 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 the haze of the desert, it was, are they police? Who is on it? There's definitely weapon systems on the back. There's definitely arms there. They're not police. They're not army. Who are they? I order my driver, Edan, to put his foot down. Go, go, go. His vehicle chicanes through the checkpoint and we're in there. I'm looking through the rearview mirror. Second vehicle gets through the checkpoint. Third vehicle through, fourth vehicle through. Thank God we're through. Who the hell were they? Suddenly, boom. An explosion happens and my wheel of my side of the truck disintegrates up the side of my vehicle. A pressure comes up underneath my side of the truck and kicks my foot into my face. I knee myself in the chin. I'm in the, I'm in the commander's side of the vehicle and a knee goes up. The vehicle, I talk about this in survival terms, time slows down and, and the, the, seeing that danger of the people in front of me that we don't know was that point of do we stop and reverse and go back. Did a shot at us, something would have happened. We were within range of them. The vehicle was going about 50, 60 miles an hour by now, and it went from straight forward on the road to rising into the air to, to then sideways on. And the vehicle hit the tarmac sideways on and began to roll, almost like a, almost like a biscuit barrel, rolling, through, rolling on the road and into the ditches at the side of the road. The, I saw the road come up to, up to the windscreen, and I my reaction was to put my hand on the, the seat to hold me in place and put my, my left hand up to the roof to hold me in place. What happened then was the windscreen, the armoured glass, which is about two inches thick, came into the vehicle and started to drag me from the vehicle. So I had my seatbelt holding me in place, crushing me in position, and my, and my arm being dragged from the vehicle. Debris, equipment, ammunition tins, rifles were rolling round inside that vehicle. They were like weapons. I was hit on the head about three times and knocked unconscious in the space of about six seconds. Bang, bang, bang. It was really calm, peaceful, really peaceful. I came to and I could see crystal blue desert sky and the, that, that yellowish um, desert, the, the, the sand of the desert was now sort of pinkish, like moonscape, like, like, like being on Mars. I could hear my heart beating and I could feel burning sensation on my arm and I was going to my, com uh, my, my uh, armour and dragging for a tourniquet, trying to get the tourniquet off. I could feel warmth pouring down the side of my face and I knew I needed to get out of that vehicle. I knew I needed to get out. That was the drill. If your vehicle's incapacitated, get the hell out of there. You know, the, the next thing, gunshots are gonna come at you. So I'll go for the door. There's no door there. The door is missing. I look up to the sky, there's no roof. The vehicle had been ripped to pieces. The, the doors had been ripped off. The roof had been ripped off. The windscreen was gone. I was in a convertible car. I went to step out of the truck and my leg went one way and my body went the other. My ankle had been had been completely smashed 
and I went to step on my right foot to get out of the vehicle and my, my, my foot went one way and I ended up standing on my bones, on, on my tib and fib, which was excruciating. It knocked me to the ground, the, the actual pain knocked me to the floor. And I found myself lay face down in the desert sand on that road in the desert. And, and for the first time, it was the first time I'd been in the most vulnerable place I'd ever been in my life. In the desert, with my body in pieces, with my leg one way, multiple injuries, multiple shockwave injuries. And I'm telling my body, move, move, do something, move. And my body wasn't working. It wasn't, it wasn't acting. My, my mind was telling my body to do something and my body wasn't acting. My team kicked into action. We'd, we'd practiced these drills. In fact, coincidentally, two days before, I was sat in the, in the, in the cookhouse, air-conditioned cookhouse, having a, a bite to eat with Gary and my, my, my teammates were in the mosque praying. And there's a bottle of ketchup on the table. And I turned around to Gary and said, Gary, we're going to do a drill. I went to my room, took an old shirt, ripped the sleeve off it, stuffed it full of uh, bandages and squirted a load of ketchup on it. On the, and this was on my, my I, it was, it was um, Rad, my, my, my interpreter. I told him to go and dress up as a, an injured soldier. Um, I then put the vehicle at the end of the base and I said, in about half an hour's time, beep the horn, we'll call the teammates out of the mosque and we'll go and do an, we'll go and do an evac drill. And we conducted this drill and I got the photograph of it now. And I look back at it and co real coincidentally, it was a left arm amputation with a neck injury. And the guys did the drill and got the, got the casualty to the clinic in, in the base. Two days later, and it's happening for real. I'm lay face down in the desert sand with my arm crushed. It's not been amputated yet, it's just crushed. I can't, my body's not moving. I'm telling it to move, but I'm not moving. I remember calling to Edan, Edan to say, hold on. But I, I knew by looking to the left of me as, as, as the incident happened, I knew he probably wasn't going to survive. The way that windscreen came in was low and I'm quite a short guy. We can only imagine what happened to Edan. Uh, and, I, and I was told later on that he died on impact. The team kicked into action. The three vehicles came round mine to provide protection. I'm getting dragged into the back of another truck and we're bombing off to an Iraqi clinic. We're bombing off to safety. And as the incident's going on, I'm thinking, we're here on the road. The nearest place for safety to, to deal with my injuries is two hours drive away in Alcott. And Alcott is there. And I'm in the back of the truck and I'm in and out of consciousness. I'm in excruciating pain. We don't have any morphine. Morphine runs out of date really quickly. And as a private security, they sort of make, take the risk on it. And I'm, and I'm going through the alert, voice pain unresponsive. I'm blah, throwing up with the pain. And the medic's leaning over the seat, giving me sips of water so I can, so I, so I can at least talk. Oh, where are we going, where are we going? Sip of water. Then I couldn't see him, I was going blind. My vision was going. Then he'd muffle. Come on, Kirk, stay with me, stay with me. And then there was nothing and it's pinching me and I'm flinching and then I'm unconscious. Now I'd been trained quite extensively in combat sort of first aid, uh, you know, as a young soldier in Northern Ireland with, you know, dealing with uh, drips and IVs and getting people casualties out and Iraq and Afghanistan, you get really, really honed in. And it helped me massively because it helped me understand what was happening to my body. It helped me understand that, you know, I'm losing blood and I'm, I am falling unconscious and, and I was calm with it. And I became unconscious and at each point of saying, going unconscious, I was saying goodbye 
this is it, I'm going. I'm out. I'm done. Back of a truck being bombed to hospital. You know, this is it. It's over. But I, I was happy. I was I was content with it because I decided that mission was happening that day. It was the ball was in my park. I decided to go back to Iraq being a bodyguard. I decided to do the gamble and take the risk. So that was my lot. I remember flying above the vehicles like a scene off Cicero, you know, that these desert vehicles are bombing through the desert and I'm flying over the top of these vehicles. And it's, and it's, and it's like a movie scene. And the next thing I'm rapping on the glass and, 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 and Gary, my two ICs in the, in the seat with the map in his hand. And I'm going, Gary, you're going the wrong way. You're going the wrong way. The team were going to a smaller clinic in the little village of Badra. Now we knew this we knew this village was only for, you know, inoculations and putting plasters on, very, very basic medicine, a doctor's clinic. My injuries were so severe, I needed IVs, I needed, you know, amputation. And that was that was that way, and they were going that way. And I look back and I speak to I spoke to Gary after this, and I remember telling him you're going the wrong way, hovering outside the vehicles going at 60 mile an hour, shouting to the crew inside the vehicle saying you're going the wrong way. Days later, after you know, in hospital and we spoke on that we spoke, uh, he, he did tell me they, they went the wrong way. They went to the smaller clinic first. How the hell would I have known that? Unconscious in the back of that truck. I came to a couple more times, um, ushered me to, pinching me. The... I remember the, the second time I, thought I fell unconscious seeing an option. People call it a light. People call it the light. The, the, very calm, very peaceful. And I decided myself it wasn't time to go. It wasn't time to go. I've got family. They, I've got young children. I need to, they need to be brought up. And uh, the option was there. And it wasn't time to go. You know, the light at the end, the light of the tunnel or, or whatever you call it. And... Uh, I decided then it wasn't time to go. And it's this thing I, I, I talk about now when I teach survival is the will to survive, that will to survive, that will to keep going. Uh, and, and it's inside us, it's inherited, it's in, innate within us, but it's about tapping into that thing. I was a physically fit guy, motivated guy, you know, and, and, and I, look, I, I was weighing up all my options. You know, I, I, I've got the training. I know what's happening to me medically. You know, <coughs> I got, I've got more to give. <clears throat> It's now the evening time and, and dusk settling and we arrive in the town of Alcott and it's quite quiet actually on the streets. Rush hours happened, a few dogs are run, feral dogs everywhere and people coming back from the mosque and we, we arrive at the clinic and all hell breaks loose. You know, the, these three armoured trucks arrive at the clinic and this couple of porters smoking outside and they, they drag me onto, onto the, 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 the um, stretcher and roll me into the clinic and uh, Hassan the surgeon's in there, I remember Hassan, and I'm conscious. And he just fills me full of morphine. It kicks in and he tells me there and then we're going to amputate. And I remember sitting there watching him go over to the, the, the equipment, bit of cutting and the next thing he's lopping my arm off and in the corner is Pete with his pistol down his pants, um, uh, my parachute regiment colleague who's uh, guarding me at the door. The guys have got the vehicles tucked away out the rear of the clinic because if it's militia, they could come and have a second pop at us. And um, I'm I'm peaceful. I'm in the clinic and I'm peaceful and I'm being guarded. I'm full of morphine and it was really brutal actually. Because as the morphine wore off, 
Pete would have to give him $100 for another dose of morphine. So it was really pay-and-go service here. Um, I was evacuated up to Baghdad Airport, uh, and there was a private jet waiting for me. Gold standard recovery. Really, really good. Uh, and it was a medical team with a surgeon and, a, and, a, and, a, and, his, and his assistant. And we were on a Learjet, washed back to the UK. Uh, and I was taken to Adam Brooks Hospital in Cambridge, which was really, really, really prime kit. Um, I, I went through some surgery. My, my leg was uh, um, put in a clamp. Uh, and I was discharged from hospital about four days later. But prior to that, I'm, I've got four days to kill. And um, I, I'm messaging everyone back in the Middle East, messaging my family, ringing friends, and I'm on to get in touch with my guys in Iraq. I'm on Facebook, and I'm talking on Messenger on Facebook, and and the the local lads are on there, and I'm translating into Arabic, and it's a little bit frustrating. And the next thing, Gary pops up. One of the guys had run across the ops room and said, "Gary Kirk's online." And we're messaging, and it's, uh, oh, Gary, how are you doing? Oh, man, the team were amazing. Just hats off to the guys. They, they did everything we trained for them alive. And, and we, 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 we were speaking about Edan, and they had a Shura for him, and he, he was buried with big full honours in his village, and he's a hero in his village now. Um, uh, and Gary said to me, hey, Kirk, I've got your army. What do you want me to do with it? I said, what do you mean? You've got my arm? He said, yeah, I've got it here. It's in the tub. <laughs> this was two days after the mission and they came they had been so busy moving clients that they came to clean the truck out and they found the, a hazmat tub a yellow hazmat tub with my arm in and one of the LNs had opened the hazmat tub oh Mr Gary I find an arm and it was my arm and, and I said well I've got use for it uh, they couldn't they couldn't bury it at the clinic because I wasn't Muslim um, <laughs> so they, the surgeon gave the team my arm uh, and they'd been driving around for two days. So they buried it in the desert and they sent me the coordinates of my arm and I want to make a pilgrimage to go back and visit it. Uh, and it's not to visit my arm, it's to go and see the guys that saved my life, the Iraqis who saved my life. And I always tell, I, when I teach now, I talk about not just my, our own guys, everybody in your team, no matter what nationality, they, 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 they're on your side. And, and it was the Iraqis that saved me. The journey back to the UK in, in, in the aircraft was just, it was a bit overwhelming. And, and I didn't even understand that I'd lost a limb. I remember I was lay, I was laying in the hospital bed and my wife had come to, to see me. And she looked at, the, at my torso in the room and told this nurse that, no, that's not him. She couldn't recognize me because there was a guy with an arm missing. She, she was told that I'd had a, I, I, there was a leg missing. And she'd only visited me for about an hour. It was quite frosty, actually. And the nurse understood that I probably needed a bit of peace and quiet to myself. And I, and I shuffled myself to the end of the bed. And at the end of the bed, there's a sink. And I ran some warm water in the sink and I've got scabs and scars all over my face and they've shaved the middle of my head where they've sutured this big gash in my, in my scalp. And um, I, I've got one arm, I can, this is full, all bandaged up, this, the stump is all bandaged up and I'm lapping my face with water, just, just, just soothing my face and there's still a little bit gritty and grimy from six or seven weeks in the desert and, and just... just the, you know, the incident, the, the dust settling, it's all got into my skin and I'm rinsing and some of the scabs are beginning to come off and I, and I look at myself in the mirror and it's, and it's a lovely clear sunny day outside and I've got this vivid image of myself and my, my eyes are bloodshot red, all of the, the blood vessels are popped and I look like I've had a fight with the devil and then I look down at my arm and I look at my body and it's a bit wonky 
and I've got this big, and I, I look a mess. I've got, I look like I look like Herman Monster, you know. And I, and I and I and I go, look at the state of you. Look at the state of you. What what have you done now, you idiot? You know. And I just and then all of the the can'ts went through my mind. You'll never be able to work again. You'll never be able to do anything again. Look at you. You're a wreck. And then it dawned on me I was alive. And I pinched myself. And I'm pinching myself going, you're alive. You're alive. And it was just being there, sitting up in that bed, knowing I'm alive. That was amazing. And I looked out the window and I could see the birds in the trees and I could see the sun shining and green grass of, of England and you know the fresh, cool air wafting in through the window. And that's when I decided it was time to get onto Facebook and thank all of my teammates for saving my life. I got to a point in my life where I needed to talk about all of the things that had happened, my military service, life as a contractor, the, you know, the near death, the loss of family. And it, it started to, the, the, there was a silver lining, you know, there was, there was an understanding that I'd been through such a journey that I was no longer the person I used to be. My abilities had changed, you know, my my uh, my uh, understanding of the world was different to quite a lot of other people. Uh, I wasn't afraid of death anymore. In fact, I, I, I now see death as, it's just, it's just a course, it's just what's going to happen inevitably to all of us. But I think as a result of that, it's, it's made me more powerful in that I'm not scared because I know what could happen, you know? And, and by understanding and not being scared of death actually makes you really, really powerful. Near Death is a BFBS creative podcast produced by Gisela Waldron and me, Joe Cowan. Sound design is by Sean Harper with original music by Will Farmer. Our executive producer is Alex Griffiths. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it and why not leave us a review? And if you've been affected by any of the themes discussed in this episode, support is available at bfbs.com audience support.